In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Cammie. Our guest this week on Money Tales is Dr. Morari Zafar. Morari was born in Kabul, Afghanistan, to a father who was a diplomat and a mother who was a doctor. As Morari tells us, in this culture, social capital has a much higher value than financial capital. Politics and geopolitical challenges caused her family to move around the globe, requiring her parents to take on different, less prestigious and lucrative jobs in order to take care of their family. They ultimately settled in California. This is when Morari first began to understand the importance of financial capital in the United States. As a young adult in love, family social pressures caused Morari to decide to marry, even though she knew in her heart she wanted to remain single and not have children. During the marriage, social capital and financial capital collided. Morari decided to leave the marriage and pursue the independent life she craved. Morari is an anthropologist and the founder and CEO of the Sentient Group, a human-centered research, education, and training consultancy in the Washington, D.C. area. She is also an adjunct professor of Afghanistan's political history at Georgetown University. Morari has worked in both the international development and defense sectors, focusing on diaspora engagement. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Morari hits on in this conversation. First, how she's learned to create a financial condition in which she could comfortably exist while not becoming thoroughly attached to every dollar bill that she earns. Second, how her personal experience has motivated her to help other women around the world cultivate their own relationship to the worlds of business and finance. Morari has realized that it doesn't matter where you are, some financial anxieties are universal and people experience similar needs and fears. And third, how she learned that for her, time is a more valuable commodity than money. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Morwari Zafar. Hey, everyone. It's great to be with you to talk money again today. Sandy, funny enough, I had a really special, hard money conversation last night with my daughter. How did it go? My oldest, who is eight, almost eight, last night, she was really sad about an outfit we just bought for an event that's about a month and a half out. And knowing kids, I was trying to dissuade her, no, don't buy it too soon because your mind will change. I'm certain of it. You weren't worrying about her growing and it not fitting? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point, that too. But she really wanted to commit. She saw something she wanted and it was the one. 
But I could tell when it arrived right away, she was disappointed. Didn't look the way she was hoping? It didn't look the way she was hoping. And you know how it is. You buy it online and it has a certain look and then it arrives. But before we had purchased it, I'd already set the ground rules that we don't waste money and get to buy a new outfit if we change our minds. So she walks up to me last night with something in her hand. She's hiding something. She presents me with $10, which is one quarter of her net worth. She hands me this and she says, I'm so sorry we bought something that I don't like. And she knows she can't get another one. But it was such a great conversation. It was really beautiful. And sure enough, it's something we can return. So I got to have the conversation about what are our options? What can we do? We could see what we already have and wear that. But it was just such a special conversation for her to appreciate that money is important. We don't just throw it away and we don't get to just buy new things to replace things we don't like. Really proud of her walking up with a quarter of her net worth to give to me. What did you do with the $10 in the end? I kept it. We're going to talk tonight about good news. We can return it and go get another outfit and you can help me return it. So I get to give her back her $10. Great money learning, Cammie. Thanks for sharing that story. Well, I get to welcome our guest today, Dr. Morari Zafar. It is wonderful to have you on our Money Tales podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Would you start us off by introducing yourself and provide two to three of those life pivotal moments that you've experienced that really impacted who you are today? I am an anthropologist by training. I am also the founder and CEO of the Sentient Group, which is a research education and training company in Alexandria, Virginia. And I'm an adjunct lecturer at Georgetown University Security Studies Program. And the three things that have affected it's quite a journey. I was born in Kabul in the early 80s. So knocking on the edge of 40 here. My dad was a diplomat. So we went to France very early on when I was about four years old. We were there for his work and then ended up leaving after he was done with his tenure there. I went back to Afghanistan. And when we got to Afghanistan, the Soviets were just withdrawing from Afghanistan. And the country was starting to collapse into civil war. A little while after the impetus of the civil war, we ended up moving to London, England, where my dad was transferred. There was something really interesting that happened there because this whole time we had gone under the guise and security, both financial and material security of another government. And when my dad was in the UK, he defected. And so we became stateless. He didn't have a job and we didn't have a place to live. So we ended up, me, my mom, my dad, and my sister, I have one younger sister, ended up having to move into temporary housing in the UK which was sort of like a refugee camp, but in a hotel in a really nice part of London to appreciate the irony of our circumstances. (laughs) We were there for about a year before we moved into another house. And that was a time where the difference in our circumstances of what we had had before and what we didn't have anymore became more apparent. And it wasn't just about money at that point. We had lost so much more that money seemed something that was, although it would have made all the difference in terms of our opportunities, it was almost this secondary or tertiary consideration. My parents had suffered mental health challenges. You know, they're both depressed. We had been forced to move countries. They had to learn a whole new language in their late 30s and 40s. Things I can't imagine being the same age that they are now, but all these difficulties. And my mom had incidentally been born in Evanston, Illinois in the late 1950s, where her parents were in graduate school in the U.S. So she had American citizenship, and she was able to go to the U.S., sponsor my dad and my sister and I. And so in 1996, 
we ended up moving to California and then starting all over again. I started high school. My sister went to middle school and my parents found odd jobs here and there until we could pull it all together again. That's a lot of moving. Yeah, it's a lot of moving. (laughs) And a lot of change. Wow. You touched on something around money, but let's go back to when you were younger with everything that's going on from being born in Afghanistan, moving to France, back to Afghanistan, you're in the UK, and then you end up in the United States. Where does money play a part in all this with your family? Is it even being talked about? Yeah, it is. The lack of it was certainly a catalyst for change and immigration at that point. We had to leave a lot behind when we left Afghanistan. So I didn't grow up with money at all. But in a weird way, that it was never in my consciousness that that's what we lacked. And that's what had created all these decisions that my parents had made and had affected their relationship. The sense of what are we going to do? We have two daughters. How are we going to make money? That I think was such a consideration for them. But we were so protected from it because we were also given the things that we needed and we wanted. So I never felt like I was lacking in a material sense. And then the other part was that culturally, and having grown up in multiple cultures, in Afghan culture, you don't really talk about money. Money is an uncomfortable topic. People don't really talk about it. And social status is assigned to families in terms of social capital. In the US, perhaps we see celebrity culture afforded to people that have this overt material wealth. In Afghan culture, it was less that. It was the social capital, who your family was, how much education they had, and all of this. That's the loss that felt more palpable to me. And then the other part was just the loss of individuals. So I didn't think about money until I was much older. You brought up the idea of social capital. That is an area of wealth that many people don't think about, along with financial capital and our intellectual capital and legacy capital. There's a lot of different capitals that a person and a family encompasses. When you and your family moved to London and you were in the temporary housing situation there, did money become apparent to you or was it still the focus on a change in social capital because you were living in a very different situation than you had been when you were last in Afghanistan? It sounds crazy when I say it, at least for me, it felt like it was more the change in social capital because that's what I was hearing more. That's what especially my mom had been more concerned about. We had come from a relatively privileged background. She had definitely come from a privileged background in Afghanistan. We had had more social capital, you know, both my parents. My mom was a doctor in Afghanistan. My dad was a diplomat. We weren't rich by any means. A lot of people there weren't necessarily rich, but you had a different sort of richness in life. And so that came through that intellectual and social capital. So it's really that loss that felt more apparent, although I'm sure outside of your shot of my sister and I, which was hard because we were in a very tiny space that those money concerns were obviously something that definitely governed my parents' decision-making. Tell us about when you became aware of money for the first time. It actually moved to America. We showed up in Northern California and actually lived like in a barrio in Union City, California. A lot of the languages I heard were not English. It was just a very diverse place. And I went to a high school of about 4,500 people at that time. That's huge. Ginormous. I didn't know anyone and I was new and had managed to use the summer to kick my British accent. So I was like, I am not about to get my ass kicked. (laughs) Also, high school with a tremendous gang problem. So it was really coming there and realizing all I needed to do was be a good student because what I saw with my parents was one job, two job, trying to do this, trying to get my sister to soccer practice, just how hard people had to work to make sure that we had a roof over our heads and dinner on the table. And as children, we got to experience whatever we needed to 
but definitely made me aware of how hard my parents were working to make sure that we had the material currency to be able to have these experiences and a good childhood. As you got older, went off to college and ultimately got your PhD, what were your dreams and desires at that point? Where did you see your life going? So you'd think having seen the trials and tribulations of how hard my parents worked, I would have been like, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon or go straight into investment banking or private equity. (laughs) No, I was like, I want to be a writer. And the great part of it is that my parents were so supportive. And I knew I learned English when I was eight years old, and I absolutely fell in love with the language. And from then knew that as soon as I got the opportunity, because for me, for my family, it was always like, yes, you're going to college, you just better know your major now. I was like, I want to study English. And so I knew when I was 17, I went to college, that that's what I wanted to do. And I think it was really in college that I realized there are two ways of doing this. And I saw around me what I had experienced a lot with some of my other classmates who came from more affluent backgrounds. They had the luxury to wait and to not work. And I was doing multiple internships. I had a job. I didn't want to be a burden on my parents. So I think from early on at that time, I realized that I had these very deep-seated passions about what I wanted to learn about, which was writing, obviously. That was the means of communicating what I was really passionate about, which I found out later, which was the human experience or understanding the human experience and how different cultures affect the way that we see the world and how that relates to international affairs, economics, everything else. In a nutshell, anthropology and then ethnography as a subset. Being there and being faced with that choice of, do I change my route now and really focus on just making money? Or do I stay authentic to who I know I am and what's important to me and try to balance the two? And it was about junior year of college where I thought, I can do this. I can figure out a way to do both. So I did. (laughs) I think I did. I'm still trying to figure it out, but I feel pretty comfortable. It sounds like you are close with your family. And I'm curious at that time in college when you were making that decision, money, purpose, money, purpose, how do I find the right balance between the two? Were you talking with your parents about that? Yes, I was. This is the interesting part where culture intersects all of this. I think my fears led me a little bit astray. Your money fears? Yeah, or just the general anxiety around having money or what that would say about me as a woman and as a daughter. And especially the daughter of an immigrant family who was trying to retrap something that they had lost. At that time, when I was having these conversations with my parents, there was never pressure on me to make a career decision based on how lucrative that path was and what my employability would be. They've always just thought, we trust you to make career decisions, follow your passions. You do you and the money will come. It's okay. We had seen that you didn't necessarily need a lot of money to be happy, which I didn't feel a lack of it as a kid. I really didn't. As long as we could afford books, our library cards were solid. It was like a $1.50 for a library card at that time. At the same time, I was under this cultural umbrella where I was expected to get married and you marry up. Social capital is coming into your life big time. Absolutely. Yeah. Intersecting with the material capital. I'd met this guy in college who was absolutely lovely. Even when I was younger, and this was a process of migration, I think, I'd always just wanted to be really independent. I didn't want to get married and I didn't want to have children. For better or for worse, as close as I am to my family, it was just a decision of, I saw how difficult it was for my parents, both in terms of their relationship and having to make decisions together and then having to make those decisions specifically about money and financial well-being with two young daughters in tow. I'm sure that had something to do with the psychology of like, okay, I'm good on this aspect of it. (laughs) But when I met somebody, especially from my mom, but I also think from my dad, There was a sense of financial security for 
people in general and women more specifically, comes through marriage, comes through a partnership. And that was from your parents' perspective? Yeah, and also sort of the community that we're in. It's something that you do. You get married, you marry up. That's how you get your financial well-being. So then you can be an artist or you can be a writer. I thought, okay, well, I like him. I'm fine with getting married. But that's not why I don't want to get married for the money. And it was interesting that it was actually through that marriage where money really became a big thing in my life. Because I did start to feel that it was becoming a way of controlling things like, well, hey, if you have a kid, then you'll have more money or we'll get you a nice place. As long as you don't go to work overseas or you don't do this. Who's providing that input? Mind you, I got married very young. I was like 23, I think. It only lasted two years. For my parents, it was just par for the course. This is what they had done. This is what happened in Afghanistan. The two marriageable youth meet and they get married and they join their lives together and very hesitant to join my life to anything, let alone anyone. The conversations really became a product of his family had more social capital. They were from very affluent backgrounds in the San Francisco Bay Area. They'd worked tremendously hard. I was very hesitant about, that's your wealth. You made it. You have at it. It's not mine. And so it always just felt very uncomfortable. Granted, now I understand you may get married. Everything is shared. But when I was that young, it was, I didn't make this. I didn't mind. But I think from his side of the family, they may have just misread it that I had these anxieties about getting married or having children because I had grown up without that amount of money and security. Whereas I had nothing to do with that. It had more to do with really knowing what I wanted to do, but being afraid of it because of the expectations of me as a woman. I, mean, I had to get married and I had to have children. And when push came to shove, I was like, I can't do this. So you're just feeling a lot of pressure from those com- from the family. And what about your husband at the time? I think he understood why I didn't want to, but I also think that he wasn't able to stand up to that pressure, which is understandable. We were quite young. But for me, push came to shops. It really came down to children. I still want children. And I still don't. I'm turning 40. So I was like, I'm pretty sure I don't. We ended up separating and we had a beautiful condo in Georgetown in DC, in the West End. Left it all and went to Afghanistan with like $5,000 in my bank account and was like, I'll figure it out. Wow. What was taking you back to Afghanistan? Work. I was working at Commerce International at that time, an international development firm in DC. And there was a project and I just feeling the need to get out of DC and get my head right. I just finished my master's in anthropology. I wanted to go and apply it and work in the field that I had studied for. When the opportunity came up, I jumped on it. But I also realized I'm leaving here and I have no money. But if there was any moment where that relationship between money and material became so apparent to me, it was that. And mind you, it's the same week that we get separated and the same week that my grandmother with whom I was very close passed away. So it was just everything all at once. And I was sitting in the closet, which was this giant, it's bigger than the study that I'm sitting in now. And I was packing up all my clothes and realized, I was like, why do I have so many shoes? Like, this is so stupid. How did I ever end up with all these shoes? And I ended up taking a black pair, a neutral pair, a pair of sneakers. And then for the next two and a half years that I was in Afghanistan, I think I added two more to that collection. And now when you look at my closet, I have about five or six pairs of heels. That's it. So shoes have really come to symbolize the relationship with financial resources in your life. It was less about quantity. It was about quality. It was like, what did I really need to exist and to exist comfortably? And I didn't need all the stuff. From that moment on, when I was packing up my clothes and my, my shoes, my closet, I just realized I really don't need a lot. And I think that's a realization too, was like, this is what I had and I was good with it. And if I needed more, I could get more. That's when I realized I can make money. 
I don't have to find a conduit to it. I can do this. What a transformational experience for you. What was it like when you decided to leave the marriage? Because you hadn't had that realization yet. You had $5,000 to your name. How did you make that decision to leave? And what did it feel like? What were you concerned about? I was most concerned about my parents and what that would do to them, which I was rightfully concerned because it was very difficult for them and it was difficult for me. I was concerned, okay, like, am I going to be able to pay rent somewhere else? But there was always this weird deep-seated sense of calm that I was just going to be okay. And I don't know if that had to do with like, my parents picked up with two daughters and moved to two different countries and made do with nothing, going from a diplomat or a doctor to working as a nursing assistant or delivering newspapers or whatever it was that they were doing at that time. If they made it work, I spoke the language. I was a citizen. I could make it work. Tell us about going back and how it felt. It was so odd because it was all at once familiar and all at once completely unfamiliar. There were little markers that I could recall. Like I remember driving down the street where my grandparents lived and realizing like, oh my gosh, that was their old house. There's a shop there now. Or driving past the mosque rose garden where I had a distinct memory of walking with my grandfather once. Those little things. But the culture had changed a lot. The social landscape had changed a lot. When I was growing up in Kabul, that overt political Islamism wasn't really a part of the culture anywhere. To give you an idea, one of the memories I have is of my mom being in a button-down dress with short sleeves, calves showing, but taking me to the bus stop for school. You didn't have people that cover, you had people that didn't cover. It wasn't like a big deal. When I went back, we hardly saw women out on the streets and just thinking like, what a sad turn of events. And then now, obviously, it's even worse. It was tough. I worked on development projects for a USAID contractor at that time. And I first worked in programming communications. And then I worked on a program that helps the capacity building for women-focused civil society organizations. So we tried to make sure that they had the institutional capacity to absorb US grants. And that was really fascinating work. But again, that was all about trying to help women cultivate their own relationship to the world of business and the world of finance. Which is really good to see because I also realized that it doesn't matter where you are, some of those anxieties are universal. It's true. Marwari, tell us about your relationship with money today. Two things. One is realizing that everything, not just with money, but I think by virtue of the way that I have grown up and was socialized and the experiences that I had, realizing that everything is impermanent. At the end of the day, either I will outlive my money or my money will outlive me. <laughs> so there's a level of impermanence to both. I don't become attached to wealth growing up and making the decision to be unmarried and independent. I realized I have to make it. I need money to exist in society. It is a form of material and social currency. I don't deny that. And I've also realized that I'm choosing to take care of myself down the road. So I've had to educate myself on how to not just save money, but how to save it intelligently. Like I I didn't know anything. I was not financially versed at all, even a few years ago, but really understanding what are ways of investing, buying property, things like that. One relationship was creating a comfortable condition in which I could exist, but also not becoming thoroughly attached to every dollar bill that went into that structure. So based on that is being able to detach myself enough to be able to use it while I'm alive and present and healthy to enjoy the experiences that truly add richness to my life. The second part, this might be an anxiety as I find myself, how quickly these birthdays are coming around. So I know that I'm getting older, but just realizing like time is on, seems to be on and warp speed these days. 
I have given myself the conditions where I can always make money. I got a PhD. I have an education. Come what may, hopefully, in principle, there will be ways where I can have a paycheck and I can live. I'll be fine. The thing that I can't make is time. And so I've become much more conscious about treating time like a commodity than money. That's a really great thought. How do you go about doing that? It's one of those times when I'm a little bit longer in bed. I'm like, remember that thing about time? <laughs> You're sleeping through it. <laughs> it's okay. That's the sleep time. <laughs> right? That's okay. Yeah, we absolutely need rest time too, for sure. And I think this is what brought me to you guys, which I really want to participate in this podcast, is that it has afforded me to share myself authentically with everybody. One of the things that I find really aggravating, and I run a business in the Washington, D.C. area, so it's all politics all the time. There's an inherent lack of authenticity in politics by nature. And so in the last few years, I really had to think about what do I want to give my time to and how do I want to give my time to it? So it's trying to remain as true to who I am. And if that means alienating certain opportunities in terms of business or professional development, then that's a sacrifice I'm going to have to make. And I'm actually willing to make because I do find that my time is better spent in the company and activities that I personally find meaningful, not what society defines as meaningful. Tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? It's actually going to be with a couple of young Afghan women who I'm mentoring here. They're getting accepted into schools now, thankfully. So the conversation is coming up on how do you allocate resources to education? Do you take loans? Do you do grants? How do you find scholarships? So I think my conversation will be on navigating money and personal finances as they transition to the U.S., which I think I would have really appreciated when I came. Yeah, right. That's so priceless. Morari, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure these young women will benefit so much. We have, our listeners have. Keep doing what you're doing. It was great to have this conversation on Money Tales with you. Thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.